because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we have started and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Thank you for listening and supporting the Basketball Podcast over the last 200 episodes. A special thank you to all of you who have listened, shared, commented, rated, and reviewed the Basketball Podcast. If you haven't done so already, the best way you can support the show is by leaving us a quick rating and review wherever you listen to this free podcast. It's easy on Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever you listen each week, and it makes a big difference to the continuation of this podcast and its amazing guest interviews. Please know that every retweet, Instagram story share, comment review is valued by us and our community and helps spread the basketball podcast love and our ability to share the game around the globe. Here's to hundreds of more of the basketball podcast. For this very special 200th episode, we have four coaches from different places in the world at different points in their careers that we're going to interview on various topics from youth basketball, basketball footwork, lifelong learning, and much, much more. Enjoy the podcast. Excited to welcome Andre Desjardins to our podcast, our 200th episode. Andre is a teacher coach for over 25 years at Louis Riel, a sports school where he is the head coach of the girls prep program, as well as the head coach of the basketball sports program for boys and girls. He has been an assistant coach with bronze medal Canadian cadet women's national team. Andre is also a learning facilitator with the national coaching certification program, as well as a mentor coach to upcoming coaches. He has spent time as the head coach at the Ontario Center for Performance for both boys and girls. Andre, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about footwork, and uh, this is something that uh, I have not addressed enough probably on the podcast, so grateful for this topic. And I'll just share a quick story. The other day, I was shooting with my daughter. Uh, we do a drill where we self-toss the ball. She runs and jump stops, pivots, shoots. Or she dribbles somewhere, jump stops, and shoots. The key part of that is she shoots. So I had to stage something for basketball immersion members, which is a reconnection, which is a simpler version of that drill to be able to help develop, say, the key teaching features of the pivot. So I got her to self-toss, jump stop, pivot, and pass back to me and essentially duplicate what would happen in a line drill. Well, the best part about that is after she did that twice, she looked at me and she said, you mean I don't get to shoot? And it's absolutely something that drove home this topic for me with you, Andre, is the fact that we can teach footwork in a much more fun, engaging way, can't we? Oh, we definitely can. And um, I, I still see it now when we're uh, like in our sports school where we have uh, strength and conditioning sessions and we're doing 
and we're not on court, but we're doing ladder drills. Like, why can't we do this with the use of a ball? People are wondering why we're not scoring on our team. And I'm like, well, we never shoot except for a line at the end against the coach. So, uh, no, I totally agree with you. I think uh, shooting is fun. Seeing the ball go in or at least an attempt to uh, going in is a lot of fun for the kids. Well, the basics of that is, yes, we want them to shoot. And literally everything we do with my daughters in the backyard in player development ends in a shot. But the other part is they always have a ball in their hands. Alex, what can we add to this? We we spoke about it a little bit in Bavaria, Chris, when we looked at the drill makeover on those line drills. And I think we're posted on the immersion members section this week. So coaches listening to this can see what it looks like. But we spoke about the context of that skill, especially the footwork. When in a game would you ever pass, stop, pivot, and and you know go back in the direction you were you were coming from? And it, like you said, you've got to make the reconnection to when you'd actually do that in a game context. And most of the time, the footwork is going to end with some type of rim finish shot or maybe a pass, but to a teammate in a different location. So I think it's really important to put those skills in in the context of the game. And I think. Too, just looking at the videos you shared on Twitter with, with Kennedy doing all that stuff, it's to me, it's I love the fact how every movement is slightly different and like your the variability in the movement, it's evident to see. And there's this idea, I think there's an idea that when it comes to movement and you know being able to use different types of footwork, it's the traditional idea is that it's just one solution you're using every time. But instead, what you're seeing in those videos of Kennedy is how she's using so many different movements and you are encouraging facilitating the variability in that movement instead of saying do one thing physical literacy is combined with basketball so there's different movements movement variability uh the other part about that is and andre i know you've used bdt and bdt shooting and different concepts like that so i want you to talk about this but the thing is is people sometimes misconstrue everything that we do starts from the feet so footwork is the most important thing in a lot of ways because it starts every basketball action we just don't teach it or talk about it in the same way that traditionally it would be done on air, blocked repetitions over and over again. So how has BDT shooting helped your players with footwork, Andre? Uh, probably the most important thing for me has been fighting for their feet. Um, BDT shooting, when you add the defense in it right away, they got to get their feet down quickly and they got to be balanced. Uh, and I allow my students, I'll teach them. You can stop on two at the same time. You can go left, right, right, left. But you choose. You choose what works for you. Um, and uh, just make sure you get the balance quickly. And so that's that's where we've used the BDT is just trying to let them be comfortable with their own footwork. So I love a few things. from, But the most important thing that I take away from what you said is you call them students. I think we need to use more learning language. Now, you're attuned to that because you're a teacher and you've been involved in the system for a long time. But that's intentional, isn't it? To be able to talk about players as learners, to talk about them as students, isn't it, Andre? Uh, definitely. I mean, they're, all, they're always learning. We're always learning. Um, and that's one of the things I like about uh, you guys and what you're doing for the game itself is that you guys are constantly trying to be students yourselves. Uh, and the more that we try to be students, I find it's easy to put our own athletes aka learners or students and see them as what they are learners and and they're ready to absorb as long as you make the lesson fun absolutely fun engaging mindful those different things so alex give us an idea of how we can use some constraints within to be able to develop footwork because that's really at the core of this is to connect it the decision the skill to the game 
and we can develop footwork through that pathway. Perfect, Chris, because I did a whole session today, 60 minutes, individual session with a player, and it was essentially BDT the whole time, just with all these different constraints. So essentially the essence was, it was a shooting focus in the workout, but the aim was to get repetition out repetition. And instead of him, you know, using one repeatable technique, my aim with the session was to make him move in as many different ways as I could. And probably if you watched the video, maybe he did at least 200 different techniques in, within the shooting workout. So, you know, taking the base of BDT and essentially just, I was experimenting with some differential learning, which is basically using fluctuating movements to kind of change up their internal dynamics and maybe lead them to discovering some new movement patterns. So for instance, we were doing BDT out of different stances. So like staggered, wide, narrow, uh, BDT with different arcs, high arc, low arc, medium arc. We were doing no follow through, holding the follow through. So this is all some random stuff I'm, I'm trying out. And he loved it because the idea is that we're preparing him to shoot in all different situations because no shot is the same. Um, and the great thing with BDT is that it adds that all in, in an unpredictable environment. So he's constantly, he was constantly changing location, changing distance. Then he was doing, we're doing shooting out of our triggers. So for instance, he'd be coming in, maybe doing a ghost screen. And we got one of these videos on YouTube. He'd ghost screen. Maybe I'd call for a handoff. Maybe we'd do a push pull, he'd drift, whatever. It was always variable and just adding the BDT makes it more random. I think the idea is that when, when we're creating practices, going in with the approach of trying to get the player to move as differently as you can, and as opposed to just trying to get them to do one movement exactly the same for the duration of the workout. I, I love that. And everything is footwork. Andre, do we need to isolate it? Do we need to do hours of blocked repetitions of footwork to be able to develop it? Uh, not at all. It's, it's funny how I still go into practice and people still run and I'll use the defensive side of it. Uh, they'll run zigzag and don't cross your feet. They're still teaching it, even though they've been through the NCCP and whatnot. And so we play these games of let's just play tag in a bet in a volleyball court and see if you can get, keep them in front of you. Um, and then all of a sudden I say, like, how many times did you slide? Uh, never. <laughs> so the kids are, are going to learn defensive footwork they're going to learn offensive footwork if you just put them in different situations where they have to find a, a you know an internal solution to to the problem that they're looking for well and then what it comes back to is is if someone is struggling whether it's an individual or it's more than one individual you can obviously do a team intervention but then you can go to a reconnection Alex, I've talked about this. I just did a masterclass on reconnections. I think it's one of the most important things that we've been sharing, but I don't want to explain it. I want you to talk about it a little bit from your perspective, what that means. Okay. So on the reconnections, I only learned about it well, maybe four months ago from when we had a conversation, Chris. And I think the biggest thing is it saves time, number one, a lot of time. And number two, I find that it, I found that it really helps players understand how they can use things that we've already done and apply it to a new situation. It saves so much time because players can quickly uh, understand kind of what it is you, the idea you have as a coach and immediately start doing it instead of taking like one or two minutes to explain what the drill is. And then obviously the biggest thing is just understanding the context of how different skills can be tra transferred over to different situations. We can teach the complex first. But the key part about all of that is when you teach the complex first, if they are struggling or someone is struggling, you can always go backwards. But we don't want to start from the bottom and work our way on up and then 
find out that we didn't need all these progressions. We didn't need this. We could have thrown them in the deep end and they could have figured out on their own how to swim as opposed to even us needing to teach them. But if we need to teach them how to swim, we are there to teach them. Andre, can you uh, maybe share some other ideas about how you incorporate footwork? You know, specifically, let's go fight for your feet is getting your feet down to be able to shoot. So let's go beyond that and get into how can we teach pivoting to get out of trouble? Because these protection plans and different concepts, whether it's a back pivot or whatnot, are also at the foundation of what we should be teaching young people because we know they're going to get into trouble. One of the ways we do it is we do some full court stuff where it's a bit of a, I'll use Alex's um, uh, title game. I think he called it Kinder. Um, and what we'll do is they have to cut back to the ball in full court. They receive the ball and we make it so they catch it blindly. And then we'll either throw one, two or three defenders at them. And we always talk about you got to get vision first. And so they learn quickly when they front pivot to a double team uh, that they get themselves into trouble. So we talk. We'll debrief it. We'll talk about, well, how can you get vision and create space at the same time? And then they kind of figure out that they need to do the back pivot. And then they start to work on that. And we'll just keep throwing it in there like that. And then we'll work at it in a full court two on three or a full court three on four, where it's a little bit harder for the offense to get open, but they know they have to work on space. So it's uh, that's been successful. Um, we do it in the post as well, where we'll do a, you know, they have to cross screen and they have to receive a, uh, a tee up as you called it. I remember that from way back when in the, at York university. Um, and uh, it, then we'll either send a single coverage, double coverage, maybe somebody digging down, and then they got to figure out how to best protect the ball uh, in order to either make an attack or to make a, a kick out pass. So those are just a couple of ways that we, we play with it. That's awesome. And it's, it's great to hear the different ways that you're incorporating it and emphasizing it. And that's really what it's about. And uh, we posted on YouTube, Youth Basketball Coaching Immersion, How to Teach Basketball Pivoting. And it was essentially, Kennedy was, I think she was eight at the time or nine, but uh, in, in the backyard and just, again, showed how I could develop her pivoting with her shooting at the same time. And there's really two ways that you guys have highlighted. One is we do it within a game where it's offense versus defense, whether it's live or guided, or we do it in the context of, okay, you get to shoot at the end of the action. So you're working on pivoting. And it was amazing some of the comments that I got back. And I'll share one with Alex and get his comment on it because he knows the video. But one coach said, if you're teaching pivoting, do it correctly. You're teaching her bad habits right off the bat. If you don't understand how, see consistency. And I kind of, again, I'm grateful for that because I don't think Alex and I get challenged enough on stuff. So I was really excited to have a whole conversation with this coach about what he was seeing. And this is at the core, isn't it, Alex? What he was seeing was different than what he knew teaching pivoting was all about. Exactly. And I think that, like you alluded to, Chris, challenge is a great thing. And it's something we need more within our coaching profession. But I think it's, it's interesting. And it's, it kind of alludes to the myth of the one perfect technique, right? And, you know, as coaches, we have this vision of our head of how a particular technique should be performed. And I think a lot of the time we try and, get our players to use that specific technique, that picture of that biomechanical skill. But in reality, the thing is, is it will depend on every player. So every player is so different based on those individual constraints, things like their size, their wingspan. And it's challenging because some of those individual constraints change very quickly, i.e. things like sleep, fatigue, but some take a lot longer to change. 
And because of that, every technique is different. So Kennedy is doing something which works for her and she's discovering different kind of degrees of freedom, different ways to move, different coordinations. And that's the most important thing is imposing that one specific technique through implicit instruction. For, for any coaches that aren't familiar with the term BDT, uh, you can go to basketballimmersion.com, learn basketball decision training, and there's a full webinar, there's a blog on it, and uh, tons of content on basketball decision training and how it can help with footwork. And uh, for me, not just that, but also search on YouTube shoulder game. I do a ton of shoulder game uh, with young players to be able to help them fight for their feet, get their feet down, different concepts like that. Andre, in terms of footwork too, I know another kind of polarizing topic sometimes is the two foot versus one foot and the different types of, you know, footwork debates. And I think back in the day, we probably had that debate for hours over beer. And, uh, you know, is that debate still relevant? Uh, Well, it's funny. Even the young coaches today, when we talk about finishing off at two feet, they think it's still two foot power layup. I mean, not all coaches are like that and some have advanced, but my question to them is, how do you know which two feet? Like, how are you going right, left, outside in, inside out? What's what's two feet to you? What's finishing off at two? It's interesting. I think it's a lot more than just that power layup. And I think, too, looking at the differences, again, with individual constraints and female and male athletes, there may be some research on this, and I'm not sure. But I think it is a lot safer for female athletes to finish off too. But again, I think that's off more of a stride stop, i.e. a one-two than a power layup. And I just think biomechanically, using that one-two, the stride stop is a lot safer, especially when we think, think about things like ACL injuries than this traditional power, power layup where you're really aggressive, jumping high, landing at two. I think the stress and impact on the knees is a lot more. But again, I think the main thing when it comes to this is no absolutes. When would you need the situation? And again, it's I'm not absolutist. And I see some coaches say, oh, every finish must be off two feet or, or the other end of the spectrum. And again, it depends on the context. And to me, the context would be individual constraints. Is there a defender who is physically either a lot bigger or a lot stronger who's on your hip as you're approaching and you're unsure that you're going to have a clean layout? It's probably going to be dirty. That to me is when I would come to two feet and then apply one of those protection plans, such as the back pivot. If the defender is a lot smaller or they're in a different position, it would not make sense to come to two feet. So again, context is king. And how do you develop that? Well, using all the small-sided games and concepts that we share of basketball immersion. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never taught Kennedy a layup. You know, I've never taught my other daughter, Presley, a layup. Like it's literally, I've showed them and they've seen different possibilities and they've seen different ways to do it. But, you know, Kenny, for example, as a 10 year old can already do one hand scoop layups because we haven't restricted her. And to me, it's again, like that's, that's a demonstration of skill clearly, but it's also more fun. (laughs) Like I find that more often than not, she goes to more fun layups and she, you know, again, she doesn't know an off foot layup or you know, Euro layup, but she does this stuff naturally because again, it's just a part of kind of the fun of the movement and different things that go with it. And uh, is, are those some of your experiences as well, Andre, with some of these things being allowed to happen naturally? Yeah. In fact, I find as they, so my prep girls that go grade nine to grade 12, they're way more, uh, it's hard to break them out of the mold and what they were taught and just get them to be creative. Um, so I've had to give them some creative solutions sometimes because they just couldn't figure it out. And I'm like, well, have you ever thought of this? And they laugh about it as well. It's crazy. I said, why is it crazy? And, uh, you know, they'll try it out and say, oh, actually that works. I can use it here. 
And so they've been trying it uh, and, and getting out of that box is, is really good. Well, that's the key. The decision is more important than the skill, right? Are they shooting an open layup and do we care how they're shooting it? Well, the decision to shoot the open layup is really valuable to shoot a contested layup to understand that's a bad decision is also valuable. So those things are certainly trump the actual execution of whatever layup in our opinion. Just one last thing on this topic is this idea that, you know, and Andre, you alluded to that just now. Sometimes we teach something at a really young age to players as a must, and then that hinders their development for the future because that must is the only thing they do. And I believe that we do that way too often at the youth level. And uh, that was too important a comment that you made, Andre, for us not to bring out. Uh, that we want to give possibilities and not must at the young level, because we don't know ultimately when they get to their maturation level, what their musts are, right? And as Alex alluded already, it's very variable for different players, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I look at some of the kids I have now. Um, one of the girls that just graduated from us and went to McGill, she came in as a 5'4 point guard and left our school as a 5'11 point guard uh, and didn't grow until she was in grade 11. Um, so she learned a whole bunch of different skills at the young age, which is now totally, uh, helping her in, in her game right now at, at five eleven. Um, but how did we taught her just to do, you know, the regular in my own circle layup one foot and she never would have got that off at a young age and then would have got discouraged. I think. Andre, uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us for our 200th episode. Uh, just tremendous to have you as a member of our basketball immersion community. Uh, you've engaged Alex and I with questions and uh, challenges and those different things that have made us better coaches as well. And we thank you for that. Oh, it's been awesome. Um, you know, I'm always looking for something new to stimulate my thinking that sometimes comes in and, you know, attests or confirms my thoughts. And then other times like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And so it's it's always been good for me to just keep on learning and then being able to transfer it and, and just, you know, go into the lab at, at the school and try it out with the kids at school. And sometimes I try to tweak some of the stuff you guys have done and, and play with that. Uh, but uh, in general, it's been very valuable in terms of uh, my own growth and also sharing with other coaches. Well, thank you for saying that. I love particularly that you said like you adapt the ideas, you don't adopt them. We don't want to create disciples that just go do exactly what we do. We want to share how we teach, a little bit of what we teach, but then you take it from there and then and showing us a whole new way of doing it too. Excited to welcome Sam Fennell to join our 200th episode of the Basketball Podcast. Sam is the co-head coach of player development and schools training alongside Joe Reddish. She is also clubs and development officer for Franklin Basketball Association. A former player herself at an elite level, Sam has made a huge impact on youth basketball with her Swish Clubs program. Sam, thanks for joining the show. It's great to have you here with us. Cool. Thanks. Uh, that was a really good intro. I'm really excited to be on. It's my first feature on the podcast. Obviously, been a listener for a long time, so I'm really excited to be on with you guys. Grateful to have you here, and I've had a chance to spend some time with you and Joe and Swoosh, and just you're doing tremendous stuff over there in New Zealand, and. Uh, you know, I know Alex as well has consulted and done some stuff with the Franklin Bulls and uh, just great synergy. So we're excited to talk to you about the Swoosh Cubs program, which I think is amazing. So can you give us first maybe just a brief overview so people know what we're going to be talking about? I work for Swoosh Training, which is an independent uh, training company in New Zealand. Um, we cater to all ages. So the mindset behind that was myself and Joe Riddish, who's the founder of Swoosh, was to create something that went from 
the entry level all the way through to the elite levels. So we decided to create a program that starts from the age of four, uh, goes all the way up to the age of 12, and that just prepares them. So then from there, they have what they need to go into academy programs or school programs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the Swoosh Cubs program is broken up into two age groups. We have a junior Cubs and a senior Cubs. So the junior Cubs goes from age four. So we actually take them before they get to school, which is quite unique. No one does that. Uh, and they go through to the age seven. And then the second Cubs group goes from age eight to 11. So it splits them into like the correct age groups where they can kind of do similar concepts based on their size and skill. And yeah, we just go from there. So it's basically play development at a really mini level with small people. Well, and we want to talk about that and uh, dive a little bit deeper. But, uh, you know, to get kind of us stimulated for the conversation, I want to just share a quick quote with you. And I thought this was really, really well said. And it, the quote is this, children's play is always purposeful, even if we can't tell what the purpose is. And it's always educational, even if we don't know what they're learning. And the moment we as coaches impose our own agenda on play or drills or whatever it is, play comes to an end. And no matter our intent, it's going to come to an end. So the question is, first to you, Sam, what are some of the solutions to be able to balance this concept of providing an environment for learning? Yeah, so I think that the solution for us as coaches is to be more comfortable with our players' self-discovery, I guess, through the game. So through playing, through the game itself. Um, and that comes back to not always being the one that's talking. I think traditionally we as coaches feel that we need to be talking for our players to be learning, um, but we don't need to be doing that. So myself and Joe, we have this analogy is we don't need to be PlayStation coaches. So we don't need to be giving them moves to do in the moment. So um, yeah, I think there's just so much that we can learn from the players. I feel like if we just take a step back at times and minimize our interventions, I guess, um, we can give the players the opportunity to, to self-discover and figure it out. I love that. We're not holding the Joey stick and moving them all the time. So Alex, uh, what can we add to this conversation? For me, it's really interesting. I think the situation that happens the most in basketball is pre-practice and before the practice actually starts. When you see players trying things out, experimenting, sometimes just socializing with their friends, which is a big reason kids come to practices. Yeah. and as opposed to doing those things and trying out new things, they get given some type of very rigid routine, typically block constant practice by the coach. And then, you know, all the, all the discovery is, is destroyed. So to me, when I thought that was a really good quote, and that was the first thing that just came into my mind when I heard that. Yeah, it's great. And uh, you know, Sam talked about this a little bit, like too, too often we teach basketball, like we teach reading this stepwise process based on rules, what if we taught it more like, you know, children acquire language, which is what Alex is talking about, which is more this experience of interaction with people and their environment. Cool. So I'd just like to answer that with a Cubs related answer, which I think is um, relevant right now. Um, so based on what I've noticed, obviously coaching Cubs for, this is going into my third year now, uh, when I rock up on a Saturday morning, it's early, usually the kids get their quarter of an hour, sometimes half an hour early, is they're just straight into interaction. So there's no need for me to be like, hey, grab a ball. There's the hoop. This is how you dribble. They just, by nature, they'll, they'll say, hi, Sam, give me a high five, 
grab a ball and they're straight into doing basketball related stuff. Another thing that I've noticed is in the breaks. So when we put our hands in, we have a little break, water breaks. What you'll notice is the kids just automatically go and do stuff. So they'll either self-organize themselves into a one-on-one or they'll be practicing a layup or a move they might have seen on TV, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the little, little ones will pass to each other just randomly in the breaks. So what you'll see is like without even having to tell them what to do, they kind of just do it automatically. Um, which is something I've noticed with the younger kids um, without having to give them too much. And that's kind of the point that we take away those opportunities often mm. from them and throw a whole practice. And uh, when I visited Alba Berlin and their club and their youth development program, they had something similar where they, th- the players could come like a half hour, 40 minutes early. And that was their time. There was no coach interaction. It was their time to be around their friends and play. And Alex, we get it. Like coaches are drawn to clean and organized drills that are orderly because they give them a sense of control and a feeling of progress, but it's an illusion, isn't it? It's an illusion. And we don't necessarily consider coaching young players the way they actually learn. It's interesting when it comes to these pre-practice routines too, because it's really, we have enough time in the practice. And if we're designing practices, which are engaging, full of small sided games and appropriate constraints, you know, we don't need necessarily that extra time before practice. It's, it's, I know, and I know coaches do it in a good attempt to try and be more efficient and to try and get the players to develop as supposedly more opti- optimally. But the reality is if you just allow them to experiment and do all the things that Sam just referenced, uh, if you pair that with a good practice, which is delivered with modern evidence-based ideas, more sided games, that's far more optimal. And I think the interesting question would be to consider well, and some coaches might be asking this, if that's the case, why don't we just let kids keep doing that? Why do we even start the practice? And I think that's when obviously the ideas of the constraint-led approach and the idea that by using constraints, we're nudging the kids towards more particular interactions. That's obviously why we start the practice. But, and this is maybe a controversial statement, I would consider that free play to be a better alternative than a lot of the traditional practices we see with block constant practice drills like zigzag three non weave. Yeah. So nudging them, shaping them through constraints, like we're still actively involved. We know what we're doing. It's only random to the kids, right? It's only seems free to the kids, but we create the structure for them to be free to them to experience and for them to be in these constraint led uh, situations. So maybe Sam, get into the body of some of your practices then and give us a feel for, you know, how you create this learning environment for your young players to be able to self-discover and interact with their environment. Just, yeah, everything you said, Alex, is 100% true and something we, we've we become a lot more comfortable with, obviously, being uh, basketball immersion members and and taking on that games approach and evidence-based and messy learning and all that type of stuff. So it's something I'm completely comfortable with now uh, to the point where um, other coaches or parents have come from alternative programs have come in and they're kind of like trying to figure it out and they're sitting on the sideline like why hasn't she started the session yet and I'm like yeah that started trust me like they'll just yeah, be why aren't they like, standing in straight lines why are yeah. you know why is it unorganized all these different things I get it too yeah <laughs> so it's um it's something that takes time I'd say like especially being a young coach as well people can misconceive that for you not knowing what you're doing uh but but when you can explain it and and when the players go home telling their parents hey like I learned or I love something then they, they kind of believe that as well. So in terms of structuring a practice or a session, a lot of games, 
um, originally started off with um, drills and doing things a specific way. And as I became more comfortable with this method of coaching, obviously it evolved. Uh, so the kids do a lot of one-on-ones as their warm-up. Um, I could maybe prescribe them a couple of things that I want them to work on, but I don't tell them exactly how to do it. I just say, this is what we want to do. You go do it how you want to do it. So we could do like some tap and go game where they have to tap the basketballs, dribble to the hoop, and the only constraint is you have to finish off two feet. So they could pivot, they could not pivot, they could jump stop, they could stride stop, I don't mind. It's just that is the only constraint. Stuff like that. Um, A lot of interactive games, especially with them being young. So they like to be paired up or in groups of three or four, which I think is more relative to the game anyway, as opposed to one-on-o, 2-1-0, 3-1-0. So they're getting that that sparring aspect, like I'm competing, um, whether it's just to a score or if it's to get to a specific area first. You know, obviously I encourage coaches to follow the Swoosh account and your account and be able to get some ideas. But Alex, this is it. I mean, until I saw you live in Berlin, do so many of these tag games and it was amazing to watch you do that. And maybe just share a little bit of what that is in your mind. Thanks, Chris. We were talking about kind of starting practice in a positive tone. And to me, that means getting the brain ready for a a situation where you're going to be making lots of decisions and also warming the body up. And I think the traditional way we've kind of seen warm-ups or things at the start of practice is only getting the body warm physically. And we, we kind of completely miss the cognitive part. We don't have connections, i.e. players aren't developing the ability to like connect with each other and actually communicate. And they're typically like a lot of these things at the start of practices are just very dry. And I think when you start something that's fun and the players start laughing, you can just have a much, much more conducive practice. So we were essentially in that clinic showing a bunch of tag games with different task constraints. And you know, we kind of blended it into the idea of platform drills, essentially, where you know a lot of coaches ask us, Chris, you know, can we get a drill? And they think it's, you know, some coaches think it's all about getting accumulating as many drills as you can. And instead, you know, everything that we have in the immersion member area, it's about can you use platform drills and take one activity like a tag game, really simple, but add all these different constraints, dribbling only with your left hand, dribbling when you get tagged, you have to score a basket before you can come back, come back in, uh, dividing them into teams and doing it time. So there's a com- competitive element. So many different ways we can load it as opposed to needing all these drills, just have one thing that you use consistently and just tweak the constraints every single time. So... For me, coaches get stuck on skill perfection focus and perfection drills at the young age. And the reason is because they don't want mistakes. They don't want players to mess up. But when something goes wrong, something good will come from it. So the question is, did they mess up the play or the drill? Or did they just make a decision that was different than ours? And Sam, maybe you can just talk a little bit about how you handle this this mistake environment that you encourage in this self-discovery? The mistakes environment has become really fun and I'm almost like hunting mistakes now. I like wait for them and I'm like, yes, finally. But I think it's it's a really good opportunity to, um, to reconnect and to teach and to explain, hey, this didn't work because of this. But if they're always doing something right, then they're almost not, not, not learning, but it becomes easy for them and it's, it's less challenging. So, so instead of, like you said, requiring them to do it a specific way in terms of skill, like perfection, 
we just get them to do it. They make a mistake because then we can pull them aside and teach within that. And Alex, my biggest takeaway from Carol Dweck and mindset stuff is really this phrasing, uh, which I've coined, is great effort making a mistake. And I ask coaches all the time, I say, how often have your players ever heard you say great effort making a mistake? Because we learn through struggle, we learn through risk, we learn through these different things, and we have to create that environment where it's okay. Absolutely. I think it all comes down to psychological safety. And, and I think this is everything with the essence of everything we're talking about. And when we look, see a lot of practices, even coaches who are very well-intentioned and well-meaning, you see players make a mistake and you just observe their reaction to, to the mistake. And that is not obviously creating that environment of psychological safety where players feel like they can grow, they can make mistakes, discover new things. Uh, and for me, you know, and that's one of the biggest things which stands out with, the, you know, all the good stuff Sam and Joe are doing. I think it's very evident in the content they share that they're creating that environment of psychological safety. And I think that's where coaches have to really be self-aware of how they react and create that, react to mistakes and create this environment. I've had a chance to watch uh, Joe and Sam run workouts like that. And you can tell players are having fun. They're having fun, not just frivolous fun, but fun trying to improve and get better. My daughter actually asked me once, because I kind of was sending her a few videos from, you know, Instagram or wherever of players doing some really cool things around her age, and they were doing it well, and they were doing it without mistakes. And at one point she said to me, don't send me any more videos unless you're sending me videos of players missing or making mistakes, because she, she got this false sense that she was never supposed to make a mistake. And I realized really quickly after that, I created that for her. That was my mistake. She was never thinking that until I kept sending her, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Instead of creating this mindset of, hey, mistakes are necessary for learning. You know, Alex and I especially are grateful for you and Joe to be a part of our basketball immersion community. So basketball immersion is obviously a huge part of, of what we do in terms of our coaching philosophy and what we believe in. It's helped um, lay a really strong foundation to what we already had, kind of added value in that aspect. Uh, we've been members, I think, since 2018, I believe, which is now going into our fourth year, which is really great. Uh, basketball Immersion, obviously, I would plug and push and promote to any coach anywhere in the world. It's tremendous value. There's unlimited resources, whether it's something you're after that's just specific to you and what you believe in. Really good content on your guys' um, platform. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely helped me become a more confident and more effective coach. Um, which is, I guess, speed tracked my my coaching career since I'm still in my early days. But I feel like I've progressed a lot faster than I could have if I didn't have basketball immersion. Well, we're grateful for you and you being a part of our community and uh, and you sharing the game on the podcast and the 200 episode at that. So, Sam, thanks for joining us. I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the pick and roll offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined basketballimmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, The pick and roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick and roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of basketballimmersion.com as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one-stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community. Milena Milosova is the head of youth basketball for the Czech Basketball Federation 
a position she's held since 2014. Her focus is on youth players up until under 15 and coach education. Milena has a background in physical education and holds many certifications, including being a FIBA A-licensed coach. Milena has considerable coaching experience across the world, having coached at several clubs in the US, Denmark, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Milena, it's a pleasure having you uh, on the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for invitation and having me here. Well, we're super excited to have you, and uh, we're going to have a, a great conversation about a whole bunch of topics. But uh, Milena, maybe you can start with just talking about some of the different Czech programs that you're involved with in terms of Coach for Future, Impulses for Kids, and then some of the summer camps, all these to drive development at the youth level. Okay, okay, great, great. Actually, I would definitely like to share uh, these ideas because we have the team that is working on those, uh, like coaches development. Coach for Future, that is the program that uh, was actually inspired uh, by uh, our German colleague, Tim Brentias. Uh, and, um, and we started to think about it. We would definitely like to have something for our coaches. Uh, I'm saying coaches for kids till under 14, because we had the programs for older ones. So that's why we decided to have a specialized programs for uh, kids coaches, let's say. So this is a program that is something more than the licenses of coaches. Coaches normally have the licenses as everywhere else, but this is, do you want to have more education? Do you want to uh, do something more for your, for your education? Then let's come here. And we have two to three weekends with these coaches and um, focus on, on some details, feedbacks. It's very interactive. Other side, we have only like one day events that are called uh, impulses for the uh, kids coaches, youth coaches, uh, which is uh, always one weekend. And um, it has much more participants, uh, like about 50, 60 participants. Coach for Future is always only maximum 15. This weekend is awesome because of the community, because of the people that are coming from different clubs, different levels, different ages, different gender. So it's also like um, socializing and networking event, let's say, between the coaches. You actually mentioned also the uh, summer camps uh, that were connected also to basketball immersion uh, because uh, we started to organize summer camps. Every summer we have uh, camps for uh, usually under 13 kids, girls and boys together. And frankly, I always want to have the head coach who is uh, international uh, because you know how, how it is. The parents, they listen to, hey, they have the English speaking uh, coach and so on. And um, I have thank you now uh, to all the coaches from Basketball Immersion that, they, that took part like Alex or Francesco Nani because it was perfect. Well, and hopefully me this summer. <laughs> oh, I hope so. That's the plan. Well, Even thank you. We're, we're grateful with our relationship with you and with Czech basketball. And uh, we're, so the reason we wanted to talk about this, because I think so many organizations and clubs around the world talk about providing better education for youth coaches. But by and large, that's the area that gets skipped. But we generally don't spend enough time educating youth coaches. And there's a lot of barriers to that. And I, I want both of you to maybe talk about that. But the essential part is we know that young people are not mini adults. They're different. So when we think about coaching a college team versus coaching a youth team, 
they're very different. Alex, maybe first, let's talk about some of the barriers to coaching or to, to educating coaches at the young levels. Well, firstly, I think it's it's great having Milena here. Our, our relationship goes back a while when we uh, worked on the on the junior MBA camp in uh, in Slovenia back in 2015. I think ever since then, I've been very interested in the work uh, being done in in the Czech Republic because there's such a big emphasis placed on youth basketball and youth coaching education, and I haven't really encountered that in many other places in in Europe. I think too, when we look at a lot of the traditional kind of coach education material, a lot of it is typically tailored towards coaches who aren't actually coaching at this age within some federations. So I think having, you know, youth coaching, it's almost like a a different sport to the needs of a senior professional player. And starting, I think, kind of what a youth player needs is so different all our immersion concepts in terms of small-sided games and just creating a positive atmosphere. And that's all the stuff that we did, we've, we've done the last two years when we've done these camps in the Czech Republic, when we've come in and worked with the coaches, worked with the players. It's showing that there's, there's a different priority when working with these youth players, and it's more about creating that environment, which is setting them up for future success. You've kind of got to reverse engineer it a bit and think, what are the skills these players need when they turn 18 or 19 and they go up to senior basketball, especially that's the age here in Europe. And then it's kind of like working backwards from there. So that at the youth level, you're actually working on the skills and concepts, which are going to be useful for them when they're older. And a lot of the time when we look at these traditional drills using block constant practice, it's just doing things which isn't necessarily going to help these players become the most skilled adaptive players they can be when they're older what are some of the barriers that you're facing because again Uh, you're at least trying to get these youth coaches educated which i love if you take just the program and event and to have it it makes nothing you firstly have to have a concept and you have to have a leaders that will give you a direction which is not just me it's uh, actually my board director is our generally secretary secretary general or board with the small small kids which is called baby basketball in our country and we started to educate coaches especially in also in this age it's very very important how how you coach it because if i will come to to the gym and say the kids you stand here you run here and you shoot here. Well, okay, the kids is going to do it. But then Milena will come and she will say, hey, we are in the wood. We are hunters. And, you know, it's really necessary uh, to have that enthusiasm, to have that energy and uh, actually focus on also how, how you coach and how you um, uh, are as the role of the coach what are you as the example and uh to me sometimes it's even more than a technical side we agree with this or a lot older. more and what you're implying is when you do that obviously we have to focus on interjecting more fun more activities that they get excited about is that correct yeah and i i uh, going back to the question actually with the youth basketball um what helped us as the federation is also the connection with Italian Federation on Erasmus project, with, which was called Easy Basketball, which is also focused on like skill development in the uh, game approach, let's say, uh, with the development of cognitive function, functions 
and so on. So it, it, it really, really helped us. So because if Mauricio Cremonini says something to the coaches, then it's really, really great. Uh, and maybe it will more influence the coaches than if Milena is going to say it. <laughs> well, you know, getting experts and getting different people involved to help uh, support what you do. That's been very common for Alex and I in terms of some of the travel that we've done. It's largely not been to help people say, come to these conclusions that you and I, we've already come to. It's to support what they're saying, just saying the same thing they're saying, but now it's coming from a different voice. And uh, it does add power to it, doesn't it, Alex? Oh, 100%. And that's that's absolutely it. Just sometimes framing things in in a different perspective can help connect some different thoughts. And I, I totally agree with that statement. So one of the challenges, obviously, that we know uh, for youth coaches is that almost all of them are not professionals. So it's really hard for them sometimes to understand why they need to spend time on their education, especially like we face this in North America. I'm not sure about in Europe as much, but the parent coach. And they're like, you know, I'm doing this as a volunteer. I'm not doing this as a professional, but you're asking me to go get certified. And a lot of coaches don't see the value of that. So what say you to that? Definitely the same in Czech Republic. And uh, frankly, as soon as we settled the professional positions within the federation, we started to think about this. And uh, yeah, we always have the programs, events where the coaches are coming to us. But there are also the programs uh, when we are actually going to the uh, clubs. Um, I am going all around the country and it doesn't matter if it's the sports center that is supported by the federation or if it's just the small club that has three teams. If they ask me to come there, I'm trying always to set, settle it uh, into my calendar. And I have other colleagues that are uh, in the position that they are running those workshops. And um, frankly, we are trying to find a way how we can uh, get to them, closer to them, and give them that education. And my experience is that they, we are always very welcomed, and I'm always very surprised how they are actually hungry about to, to know more. And we also have to create some op opportunities for them. It's as coach for future impulses and so on. I imagine that's a big part of your job, isn't it? It's connecting. Hey, you mm -hmm. did this, and now look your players are having a better experience or you're making some type of connection for them so that they understand the value of what they're doing. Exactly. And you always have to praise them. Uh, you always have to think about the feedbacks. Uh, it's uh, very hard, but we always have to think they are not professionals. They are giving as much energy as they can. They Maybe that's their limit, but they are actually giving their time to our kids. Also, I think a big part of that is when just the camp when when I was when we were together and it was the most organized camp I've been a part of. But also from a coach education perspective, every single day we were doing debriefs and we're critique we're having challenging conversations, but in a good way. And also with the coaches, it really helped them get involved in it and have deep conversations. And I think that's so important with any of these like coach education type activities. I feel like. If coaches, especially volunteer coaches, a lot of countries in Europe have those, these, you know, volunteer based, whether it's the UK, a lot of countries in Scandinavia, Northern Europe, it's the same. 
But I think if coaches feel like they go to an event and they get something out of it, which they can use with their team, and it's an engaging format, they're more likely to want to do more. But really, I think the problem traditionally with how a lot of these events are run are they're quite dry. It's typically like a seminar where one person is speaking for the whole time. There's not much opportunity for interaction. And that's why I think, you know, events like the camps you ran, Milena, and some of the immersion academies we do, we're not just giving a very different type of content, but we're actually delivering in, in an engaging manner. And I think that's really critical for any federation or organization to consider if they want to get more people feeling good about learning, uh, running more interactive events, I think is a key place to start. Which means less passive learning and more active learning, right? And exactly, we say the same thing. We all, all three of us agree, this is the way we should be coaching players. So why are we not coaching coaches the same way, making it more active for them? Exactly. And you will actually be facing the same things as with the players, because uh, frankly, many times you are going to face the coaches that are professionals. Um, that's my experience. And I thought that if we will give them more money, if they will be full professionals, everything is going to be perfect and they will be growing, blah, blah, blah. But as soon as they weren't open-minded, they were totally closed, uh, it didn't help. So the money could not help. They have to be open-minded. And that's why, actually, I'm always trying to find the coaches that I, I, can, I can take only six best coaches to the camp every summer and say, uh, let's go and make it the best for kids. But because I am trying to think about coaches development, I always take different people, different coaches, but also from different towns, different regions um, uh, to, to make sure that maybe I want to postpone exact person because I've seen him on some game, on some practice, and I want to give them another opportunity because I could see that they want this opportunity. Isn't it fun to watch the coaches try the same skills they're going to be teaching and to put that in perspective for them? And it's not so that they can do it perfect. It's so that they can experience it. And uh, Basketball Canada, a long time, this goes back 30 years when I did my certifications, Bob Bain, Bill Pangos, two really highly respected coaches taught my you know, level one, level two, level three. And every single time we went to a weekend of training, we participated and we were the demonstrators and I'm telling you, the humility that comes from that is very empowering because it really puts you in a situation where you have to figure out, okay, how would a player be experiencing this and how do I help them? And that's really what you're talking about in a lot of these interactive experiences, isn't it? Definitely. They have the experience like they are living it. They are as the kids in some parts of the uh, these courses, but also then the on the third stage or second stage they have the camps with kids and they are the leaders they are these coaches who are running these camps and we are just watching them and giving the feedbacks or other group is giving the feedback not, not just the, we as the leader so it's like the creating the community that is very open to each other and uh you know being interactive is the key as you said just before alex goes my general rule to coaches when they're trying to learn something to teach for the first time first of all try it Secondly, teach it. And then once your players do it, ask them, hey, do you think this adds value? Do you think this helps you? Is there something about this that works or doesn't work? Because I can't tell you how many times I taught players, especially when I was a younger coach, something. And then later I found out they didn't think it was very valuable. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if it's not valuable to them, it's not my solution, it's their solution. Alex? No, I just had some good flashbacks of 
all those co- our coaches in Bavaria trying trying out BDT, and it was it was funny. But on a serious note, it was like the coaches who kind of got the most out of that weekend and really were the most engaged were the ones who were up there trying out the BDT, trying different things, and it was just great to see. Well, we do this at our immersion academies too, and the other part that goes with it, Alex, and I'm sure you're you're surprised how how many coaches refuse to go out and try it. Oh. Was, I was surprised. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was entertaining to say the least. It was great. <laughs> but the ones that experienced it, it becomes more permanent for them. And they understand BDT or shoulder game or these different ideas more because they've tried it. And it's a lot easier to remember something once you've done it or tried it. So shifting gears just a little bit, we know there's challenges and we know there's solutions. I do 100% believe in a games approach and small-sided games and offense versus defense for young players. Because here's the value of that. At the end of the day, one of the biggest things is to normalize things that happen to players. Things like normalizing failure, normalizing success, normalizing winning, losing, mindset training, coping, and fun. And honestly, it's really hard to create a great practice environment for young players unless you do have these interactive offense versus defense games. And they don't always have to be basketball, right, Alex? As many tag games and different types of interactive games. And that's really what we're talking about. Absolutely. I picked up a lot of good energizers too from uh, Milena. There's a notorious rock, paper, scissors one, which uh, I'll definitely be (laughs) using soon. But but the players have fun. The players win and lose. The players experience competition. It's not just about basketball in that sense, right? It's almost like normalizing some of these things so that they can cope better as they move up through the pathways, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just that mentality too to compete and deal with adversity in a practice. Just something I've found this year working with some of the players I've had in my program, the the players who have come from the most traditional programs, it's really evident because they they find it difficult just to cope when things aren't going their way. And it's a it's a difficult practice in terms of maybe they've lost a few small sided games or their teams down in the scrimmage. It's like the players who are the most kind of adaptive are the ones who are used to being in that environment, which is a lot more immersive than restrictive, so to speak. Yeah, awesome. I, I really like that. What, what you are guys saying. I'm just smiling because it's, it's awesome, actually. But I just would like to, to add uh, one, one thing, uh, these energizing games, small sided games, that's everything great. But one thing that we tried to add uh, to, for example, the easy basket Italian concept is that in our country, there is not uh, many of PE lessons and like school sports and stuff like that. That's why we actually had to think about how, how looks the reality right now. So we had to focus also on the motor legacy or versatility and the stuff like that. And now we are trying to actually teach the coaches or or let them find the solution how to teach um how to teach the kids and how to set the practices in combination with the development of skills but also development of um uh, how do you say it abilities for example motor skills motor motor abilities i mean you know, and this is sometimes very hard because you have to think about you have kids only once or twice a week, one hour, and that's it. So we are trying to give them uh, possibilities and uh, teach them that there are the ways how to combine it. 
So it's just a little detail that I wanted to to add to the like um, to the development of the players to give them the base. This is what Chris talked about. We give them the base, and if there is a kid that needs to reach the potential which is high, then he can. A lot of that, as we know, is still what the players are going to do on their own, alone, without a coach. I mean, we know that the best players develop by themselves. Now, the coach is there to help at some point, but they, what they take beyond practice is what we want. So isn't that really the main thing that you're trying to drive is you're trying to drive this passion to improve in the players so that they love these practices and they love the environment and they know that they're getting better so that they want to go do more on their own to be able to improve. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you. Uh, Milena, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how basketball immersion has impacted you and uh, Czech basketball. I would love to actually start like uh, on a personal way, let's say, because I am the member of basketball immersion and I am proud member of basketball immersion. And um, I would love to say that actually it really influenced me and inspired me. And from the first meet of uh, Alex, when he wasn't a part of uh, basketball immersion yet, uh, we had a great discussions and it took the direction to what we teach right now. We both, so so our ways are very, very, very similar. And um, uh, frankly, to be the member to me, it's not just the education, uh, but also, you know, I always need to have another energy also and to have another um, information, to have another knowledge. I'm not as old to just sit here on the couch. So I want something new. and. It's something what basketball immersion definitely gives me. And also it's a big inspiration for me as a being the leader at the federation, because I am the one who wants to run the courses, maybe one day to have a great website as you guys have and the things like that. So you are the inspiration to me. So it's really great inspiration and it's the engine for me. Then thank you uh, on behalf of the Czech Basketball Federation that you are actually influencing us all. Well, thank you so much for saying that. We're grateful for our relationship with you and, uh, you know, helping you and everyone else around the world grow basketball. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Coach, is awesome to welcome Zion Gray to the podcast. Zion is the current director of PSA. Premier Scholar Athletes, which is a youth program in Asia, and he lives in Vietnam. He has great international experience. He's coached teams in the U.S. at the AU level and youth club in Germany. He's American-born, played collegially in Canada, and he's played in Europe. And just some tremendous uh, cross-cultural experiences. Can you talk a little bit about that? No, definitely, definitely, Chris. Thank you guys for, for having me, first of all. You and Alex, man, it's been a joy to watch everything, watch you guys build up BI. It's just fun, man. It's just fun to watch. But for, for me, I, I've kind of been groomed for, you know, being in Vietnam, it seems kind of random, but coming from Los Angeles, moving away for college and then ending up in Canada and then going abroad to Europe, I've kind of been primed for it. So I'm here and it's extremely different from all my other experiences, but that's kind of what makes it so exciting. Well, Alex can relate. Alex has coached in many places and many countries, and it is different, isn't it, across different countries, Alex? So different. I and mean, even just within Europe, I mean, the kind of social cultural context of every country is so different. I think as a coach, to have an awareness of that and see if you can apply it to your coaching is, is a real plus. What is a big difference about coaching in Asia? You would notice the screen media 
influence or the screen media activity development route that's kind of going on, you know, especially with, with Asia, everybody has their devices and, you know, just trying to stay connected or as connected as possible. And after that, probably the cerebral side to, you know, some of the athletes, you know what I mean, that, that may not look like a Western or a European developed athlete at the youth level, you'll really, really notice that in Asia, their mindset and, you know, their abilities mentally, they really, they balance out the playing field, to be honest. Oh, very cool. And Don is Basketball Immersion member, and uh, he's here to ask a question. And uh, for our 200th episode, let's uh, let's go. What keeps you and Alex dialed into being lifelong learners? You know, I think that's kind of the, the, the backbone of Basketball Immersion. You know, all these new concepts and, you know, a games approach. And I really just wanted to come on and just ask you guys, like, what, what are some of the things that tie into you guys being lifelong learners? That's an amazing question. I'll, I'll say, Zion, it's actually conversations like this yes. where and and the hundreds and hundreds of like-minded individuals and coaches now that we have in this community. It really, it's that which provides the motivation to keep learning and attempt to keep, you know, sharing the game. And, and I think it's so stimulating when you have all these conversations Um it's it's such good motivation to be inspired to study even more and and share it on the platform that we now have at immersion um and i think especially just with chris i think chris helps motivate me a lot and especially as our relationships grown in well, i think it's two years now for me having that kind of similarity of someone that i can look up to but also who helps motivate me is really important and i didn't have that kind of in any previous role in that to that level uh, and i think kind of who you keep in your coaching circle and especially the individuals and coaches you have next to you i think that is a plays a really big part in keeping that motivation having that growth mindset to to keep studying well and i'll add to that uh Zion, is one thing is that like alex and i are different enough like even though like people would say, oh, we're we think the same. We and, and to a certain extent, extent we do. But I think at the micro level, level we're very different. And I think that's another part that I think helps you keep learning is being around people that are a little bit different and that challenge your thinking are okay with that discussion and okay with kind of saying no, I don't believe the same thing. And uh, that's a big part of it as well. And the only other thing I'd say that really helped me kind of as a lifelong learner is that I never stayed in one genre. And I think Alex is going through that with a lot of different things he's learning now too, is like, you think that like, all I do is read basketball or watch basketball or, you know, and I don't like, I absolutely don't. I mean, it crosses all of these different areas that I've learned from. And uh, I know the simple progression when I was younger was a lot of coaching. And then I got into business and business leadership and what makes businesses, you know, successful. And then obviously the skill acquisition part. And then later it was about a little bit more leadership. And then obviously got into parenting and, kind of these different phases of my life where different things, uh, you know, inspired me to learn. And what you realize is that so many things are, are interconnected. And uh, that's what keeps you a lifelong learner. Because I think being immersed in just one subject or one topic, especially something like basketball, would I, I don't want to say boring, would be boring, but to a certain extent, it, you, you know, you would reach your limit. Totally right. agree. Just just some in context, an in-context example of that, Chris. I've been this this Christmas break. I'm being back home in London with my family. I've hardly done any basketball specific stuff. I've read a lot of history. I've been uh, reading this book about Simon Bolivar liberating South America, and it's like you have to have 
like some different interests too because i think it it gives you the energy to keep going and it's like you can't feel like always wanting to study it's just simply impossible so being well-rounded enough to have some of these other interests i think and like chris said have an interest learning different things chris won't need to uh make so many edits on my next blog post because my, <laughs> my grammar will hopefully be a little bit improved <laughs> Right, right, right. For sure. You know, you, grammar and different things like that, grammar, the way you speak, different areas like that are just, they were always so important to me and so important to convey to players how you speak, how you present yourself. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, it's a part of Alex's growth that I think has been tremendous, just how he presents and how he does things. And I'll just give you one book and uh, maybe Zion, you can give us one book too, but I'm reading Radical, Radical Forgiveness by Colin Tipping. And, uh, you know, just a completely different genre that's been fascinating, but it interconnects with everything because I know coaches love books. So, is he on? Are you reading anything right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bumping around a couple of them. Uh, Think Again by Adam Grant, I believe. Think Again is pretty good, but then Sinek has one, Leaders Eat Last. That was pretty good. So, Chris, what what's a lot of what's going on here? And Alex, the, the blocked versus random, as far as trying to, you know, get results in terms of long-term athlete development. That's one of the things that is new in Asia, especially at the grassroots level. And that, that's my primary purpose is just trying to just shed some light on just let's explore a little bit more. Let's jump out here and let's just, let's try, you know, trial and error. So the challenge is there's, there's tremendous amount of block practice. There hasn't been a tremendous amount of coach education, especially at the lower levels that have changed that philosophy. And uh, you being exposed to basketball immersion concepts, you are trying to integrate these random and variable concepts and something very simple, changing from block to random. So I know a lot of coaches face this challenge as well in, in a way in terms of whether you have to sell it to parents, to administrators, to players, or even to yourself to know that it works. So what is your advice to Zion in terms of uh, helping him? So I think looking at the type of practice and beginning by saying it's perfectly okay to do some block practice, but I think looking at what type of block practice it is. So for instance, if it's blocked uh, constant where it's the exact same repetition of a particular technique, let's say uh, we're looking at finishing, okay? And it's uh, and you're just doing the exact same finish every time, something like you, what you'd see on a mid-candrel or something, well, it's that type of block constant practice, which isn't so so useful. If you want to do block practice and just work on finishing, that's okay, but you've got to try and have some element of blocked variable practice. So maybe it's different types of finish every time from a different location, different movement patterns, et cetera. And, and I think critically, when we look at overall retention of skill, we know that still random practice for any player that is not a novice is going to be superior for that long-term retention and that's why it aligns with all our Barcelona immersion concepts, which I'll speak to now, Chris, in terms of just coaching a games approach and strength set approach, because anytime you add a defender, it's going to simply be way more variable uh, and, and way more unpredictable than, than what you see using uh, block constant practice. Alex knows this. I've, I've pretty much tried to be a little bit political with this, and I think we're probably past that point in terms of people understanding what we're saying. Look, Alex already explained, blocked is okay. We're not saying no blocked. We're not saying anti-block. We're not saying yeah. that. There's no drill shaming going on here. But the question still comes back to, is there a better way? And we know there is. There's enough evidence across all sports to know the value of random practice over block practice. 
So I say to coaches, can you imagine if there were this many coaches still using a BlackBerry because they won a championship during a season they were using a BlackBerry? And that is the argument that keeps coming back to me as well. You know, so-and-so team does it and they won the state championship. So-and-so team does it and when they won the NCAA championship. Okay, the, the players won despite this. They, they won despite this, not because sure. of this. Sure. And that's what we have to start to understand is the BlackBerry didn't help me win the championship, right? We know that. So it's like what did is helping us evolve, move on, add more evidence-based ideas. And particularly around what, what Alex kind of talked about is this concept of if you're going to use block practice, you've got to balance it into things. But don't start with block. I think start with random. And then see if you need to use block. I'll give you a quick example. My 10-year-old daughter, uh, we shoot random all the time. We see, we see online, yes. Yeah, well, she gets frustrated. And the other day, I finally said, okay, listen, here we go. And I put her at a spot five feet from the basket. And I uh -huh. had her shoot like 50 shots in a row from the same spot. And she, she made an incredible number of shots to the point that obviously she was smiling. But as she was shooting, I constantly reminded her. This is not what we do. So you have to understand that you are this good, but we don't practice this way because it doesn't ultimately help you transfer any of this to the game. And you have to connect that to the players. And I think that is the number one value of block practice is comfort and confidence. And then sure. what Alex and I call reconnections. And that just basically means that players are struggling with something. So you reconnect them to the skill of the decision or the action, whatever it is, so that they get to see it in a clean way. And then you put it back into the random or into the messy way. Makes totally. So just, then just to like give some context examples of stuff I was working on just before the Christmas break. So we were doing some pick and roll uh, offense and defense, obviously emphasizing both sides of, of, of the game. And uh, I wanted to improve. I noticed that there was a clear problem in terms of the ability of our handlers to set up the pick and look at um, different things in terms of, I call it setup coverage solutions. So for instance, doing a reject, doing a bingo when you attack the gap between your on-ball defender and the pick. And then, and you know, we worked on it after we saw that it was evident within a small-sided game. And you can still do block practice with a defender. So for instance, we, you know, we were working on the the reject, okay? So it was just one skill working on the dribble. Um, and we had a defender there, so it was scripted. So you can still add a defender to certain blocked situations if you're only working on one skill. But then as the task becomes more similar to the game, naturally it's going to come become more random as you integrate other things. Um, and, and you, as you know, say, say that instance of rejecting the pick, well, you know, rejecting into a finish and then we loaded it and we had a, we added an extra offense and defense on the weak side. So maybe there's a pass decision if there's a, if there's help. So, you know, you can do something blocked, but very quickly, you're going to get to a level where you start adding different constraints to make it look more like the real, real game again. And naturally you've hit random practice at the same time, because now you're integrating all these different skills. Nice. Well put Alex. Nice. Zion, does that make sense in terms of that? And are you, are you seeing, are you seeing progress that, and, and I want to come back to that and say, look, we're, we're past the point where I'm a dictator as a coach. I think we all agree on that. Yeah, and right. this is now, and, and rightly so, like so many of our decisions as a coach should come back to player satisfaction. And especially yeah. I imagine in a developing country 
of basketball where you're trying to develop players' lifelong love and retention in the sport, and you want them to enjoy practice, right? So they enjoy playing basketball more than they enjoy doing block drills. And that's kind of the other point that goes with it. So give us your experiences a little bit with some of this. No, to the short answer is as far as seeing results, it's a clear 100% yes. It was, it was rocky at first in terms of not educating the parents, but just watching the kind of raw process. And Alex always talks about how raw it is in the beginning and it looks a little mushy and you don't really understand and the drills aren't really balanced. They're, you know, constraint-based sometimes. You know, so the parents, they were like, we don't understand how you can allow player-led practices this young, you know, and, and how you're asking them to give you so much feedback when they're, they don't really understand. And then that's when the evidence and the science comes in. And, you know, I say, hey, this, this is fun for them. You know, them giving feedback, it makes them feel human, which makes it even easier to connect when it's time to, you know, knock out those hard skills and things like that. So I'm enjoying it. Like, it's fun. It's fun to be the only person in the gym, you know, with the kids kind of, you know, tripping over their own feet. But at the end of the day, we're talking about long term development. You know, we're not trying to make eight year old champions. Right. I think it's starting to catch on. We get asked this a lot. How do you know it works, Alex? I'd say. I'd say first thing is the player enjoyment. Like you, you just, you can't even compare the difference. It's, it's impossible. And I mean, I did a clinic, we did a clinic for coaches in India online just before Christmas. And I gave, I finished by giving the coaches a challenge to do their next practice, to incorporate three small sided games in the next practice and just observe the difference in what the practice sounded like and felt like for them. And and two of the messages met two of the coaches messaged me after and and you know the feedback they gave was just what we're talking about now. So I think number one is that and and number two, there is obviously there's an evidence base now of of stuff which is coming out. We had uh Rob Gray on the podcast not long ago and in his new book, which uh which obviously Chris, you spoke about with him, there are a lot of studies referenced just in terms of things like injury prevention too there's just a whole plethora of different factors where using you know this more evidence-based modern coaching pedagogies are just simply way more effective so rob gray was on uh episode 192 uh a must listen for coaches it'll challenge the way you think even for me and alex who are obviously all in on this stuff and i, and I think we just have to frame it differently and and zeon you referred to this a little bit like I, I now think of myself as a guest in someone else's practice. I heard it somewhere on some podcast somewhere. Wow. But what a brilliant, what a brilliant way of framing it for us that it's it's not our practice. Right. No. And I think too often we go into practice thinking it's right. our magic and it's a it's a reflection of us, but it's about the kids, it's about the players at all levels. And we are a guest in their practice, and we've got to make that experience for them beneficial not just from you know psychosocial but obviously from a development perspective as well 100 percent, and i always tie it back into alex like hey in the beginning we are going to see some raw movements some mistakes and you kind of encourage that in the practices here you know i like to do let's fail let's fail early let's fail fast let's fail often you know you encourage that and once that barrier is kind of you know melted out the way or you know it gets knocked down you know, the kids, you see this new confidence. And now, you know, similarly like your daughter, you see the results. 
and then they get excited and but you don't make the results result based. It's not make or miss. You know, it's you know, can we develop within this failure? And when you frame it that way, they don't even care about the makes or the misses. They're just they really feel like ultra progressive. So it's fun. It is. It's fun to watch them just grow. No, that's awesome to hear. Dion, I cannot thank you enough for joining us and sharing and, and being a part of our membership community as well. No, thank you guys so much. It's been a joy, just a pleasure to just be a member and, you know, watch what it's doing globally. Like it's really, it's like a wildfire in a positive way, you know, and I hope more and more coaches across the world continue to just dive in and take advantage like I did and just be a lifelong learner. You know, that's the, that's the biggest takeaway is having these resources available and just, you know, really take advantage of it and just spread it. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and Alex and I say this all the time, just like you, we're lifelong learners. We don't have any of this figured out. No, no nobody does. No, yeah. that's the best part about it. But we're constantly searching for, is there a better way uh, within right. the framework of kind of the base of the philosophy that we have? Thank you both for joining us. No, thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at ImmersionVideos.com. At ImmersionVideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, Practice, design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.